Hey guys, welcome back to Silicon Street, a podcast where we explore the intersection of finance, technology, and entrepreneurship by providing college students and young professionals with insight into these ever-evolving fields and uncover the secrets to success from distinguished industry leaders. My name is Michael Cutler, and today I'm joined by my co-host, James Barham. If you're new to the podcast, be sure to follow us on Spotify and LinkedIn, and definitely check out our existing platform of over 70 podcasts. So today we are excited to welcome Michelle Seitz to the show. Michelle is the founder and CEO of Made Invest Partners, an investment firm and strategic advisory firm that partners with businesses within the technology, healthcare, and financial services sectors who are aiming to solve important problems. Prior to starting Made Invest, Michelle was the chair and CEO of Russell Investments, where she oversaw $300 billion in AUM and $1.2 trillion under advisement. Before joining Russell, Michelle was the CEO of William Blair Investment Management, Michelle has also held other portfolio management and markets-focused roles throughout her career at firms like Bank of America and Concord Investment Management. Due to this impressive career track and her current standing in the finance industry, Michelle consistently appears on Barron's list of the most influential women in finance and American Bankers' list of the most powerful women in finance. Outside of work, Michelle participates in a number of other organizations, such as the Fortune CEO Initiative Collaborative on Building Stronger Communities, YPO International, the Economic Club of New York, the Economic Club of Chicago, C200, and International Women's Forum. So without further ado, we'll jump right into the questions. Michelle, thank you so much for being here. Happy to no, have you. No, it's, yeah, I'm I'm very excited to be with the two of you as well. We appreciate that. Well, after going through that extensive background, I think it would help our listeners if you could maybe jump into your career path a little more, go a little deeper on some of those um, milestones like becoming the CEO of William Blair Investment Management at age 35 and then leading one of the most prominent investment firms in the world to, to now founding your own firm. So we'd love to hear some more deeper insights into that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you just tell me where you'd like to d- dive a little deeper. I, I would say that, um, you know, I didn't necessarily have a goal in mind that I wanted to be a CEO. I remember when I turned down a job to work for IBM back in the late 80s, my father was very concerned because back then uh, IBM was the bluest of blue chip companies, but I didn't want to be a financial analyst or an accountant um, in a big corporation. What I really wanted to do was to be Warren Buffett, right? So I wanted to be an investor. I wanted to have an impact on individual lives. I wanted to invest for people's financial security, but I wanted to also be engaged in the work of money management, uh, which I just find to be a fascinating career. I still do, uh, getting to talk uh, to the brightest minds in the world and you learn for a living um, and you also do good in the process. So when I was talking with my father, I remember I got a promotion um, to, uh, I think it was at Nations Bank at the time, Bank of America, and a senior or something or other. And he said, so what happens now? What's the next step? And I said, well, I don't think there is a next step. I think I'm just a portfolio manager for the rest of my for the rest of my career. I just want to get better and better at it. Um, ultimately, I did end up uh, running uh, investment firms, but it, it really was a byproduct of just waking up every day wanting to make a difference uh, to fill a vacuum where I saw it might exist within my organization. You know, that that famous phrase of about uh, wait to ask for uh, forgiveness instead of permission. I just viewed it that if I could make uh, what we did for clients better, had a greater positive impact on our clients, made my boss's life better, and easier, and went to bed a little bit smarter than when I started out, that it would lead to good things. And I, I ultimately, the byproduct of that was stepping into leadership roles, um, doing a lot of strategy work for my organizations aligned to what I believed our mission could be or the vision of what we could become. And that was very inspiring to me and, and fortunately a few others that were responsible for putting me um, in those seats. And so that that ultimately led to a fabulous career, which I've been very fortunate to have been touched by a lot of great people and hopefully have given a little bit back along the way. But anyway, so that's my that's my story. 
Absolutely. And certainly a, a, a unique and fascinating story. I know it seems to be a common trend through all the people that we talked to on the podcast that no one really has what they end up do, are doing right now in mind when they, when they first start. So it's, it's cool to see how that kind of organically worked for you. And um, obviously now you're in a really cool position leading, leading your own firm in Made Invest. And um, I guess we can pick up there and, and if you wouldn't mind, you know, expanding a little bit on what Made Invest is and the mission um, of the firm, as well as kind of how I know two, two main goals of Made Invest uh, as listed on kind of your website is to positively impact society while also providing capital to historically underrepresented groups. So maybe also expanding on that, how are you able to operationalize those goals that made invest? Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, let me tell you a little bit about um, made invest and really it's a culmination of what I've been doing over my entire career, which now uh, sadly or fortunately spans, you know, over uh, 30 years, but um, yeah, I've always been allocating my capital to endeavors or investing in companies, both personally and professionally, that uh, spoke to uh, fulfilling um, a, a need or a problem. And we we can talk about it a little bit uh, in the podcast as well. But it to, to me, that's always meant that companies that can have a sustainable, durable uh, franchise and impact usually are solving some pretty complex problems. And it tends to benefit people <laughs> and, and the planet rather than hurt it. So I, I know that uh, companies um, that sometimes make it into the papers um, can be doing things that aren't uh, for the broader good and they can be very successful over time. But if you look over time, to companies that really have had tremendous success and sustainable success over time, they've tended to leave the world in a better place than they found it. Um, and so, you know, over time, uh, I've invested in lots of companies across the cap spectrum, across the balance sheet, angel investing uh, to big uh, global uh, large cap, mega cap companies. And the through line for all of it has been the ability to have a sustainable, positive impact. Um, and that has built their franchises. It's built enormous moats around their business. At William Blair, we carved out a philosophy in, of investing in high quality, durable companies. So I've just taken that into, I, I've, put a, I've put a company around it. Um, but really, I've been doing it for a very long period of time. And throughout my career, diversity and inclusion has been a very big part of what I've done. Uh, when I started out, there were zero uh, women or I would say un other underrepresented groups. So diversity was not um, uh, a focal point of the asset management industry. And so it's changed quite a bit. And so advocating for that. Um, integrating that, um, using my financial resources uh, toward that, now getting to use my time as I want uh, toward that, as well as the voice that I have uh, in the industry and more broadly is what I'm about now. So it's, it's really about using my resources, which is my money and my time and my voice uh, whether it's in public policy or it's on corporate boards. And then as it pertains to uh, the investing side of the equation, it's just really fun to be able to connect founders that don't have the same network after 30, 35 years. Absolutely. No, it's certainly an, an admirable um, career path. And it's I think it's a, another cool piece of advice. Um, you kind of mentioned that throughout your career in your different roles, you still worked on, you know, trying to create an impact. And I think, um, you know, for me and for our listeners, it's, it's cool to hear that you don't need to start your own firm to make an impact and, and um, help others with your investments. You can do that while working for another firm. But I think it's, I think it's even better now that you're able to dedicate, like you mentioned, most of your time and resources towards, you know, the, the missions and investments that matter most to you. Uh, so I think it, certainly a, a very cool, um, opportunity for you. And I guess, um, you know, we kind of spoke broadly on on the impacts you you aim to make, but I think it might be helpful to kind of get 
um, more on a on an individual basis. And and I don't know if there are any individual investments in particular that you made at Made Invest that you can point to that kind of um, embody this uh, investment strategy and, and thesis that you have of, of making impact while also a return. Um, uh, one of the most recent uh, investments that I've made, I've made a few, we can talk about a couple if you'd like, but um, w- one that I can at least point to the trajectory also and the gratification of angel investing, which doesn't always work out, right? I, I will say that I do put this in the category that I assume it could be a charitable endeavor, right? I mean, more angel investors strike out than strike it rich. And so the, the main goal is to try to provide funding to great ideas that deserve a right to try to exist. One of the ones that has been both more recent as well as on a very nice trajectory toward having that impact is one called Sora Union. Um, They do have a website, it's up and running. It'd be great if you wanted to go uh, take a look at it, but it's a globally distributed professional services company that specializes in design, localization, software engineering, QA and recruiting as a service. But most importantly, Um, It gathers and organizes highly skilled displaced people to deliver exceptional work. And and when you talk about distributed work, what typically comes to mind for people is the gig economy. But the important difference with Sora Union is that the talent pool is made up of teammates who can benefit from a stable role and a wage as well as continue uh, their career wherever in the world they might be. So, you know, uh, many of the uh, 50 now talented employees of Sora Union, um, unfortunately, because the company was started at the um, at the uh, start of the Ukrainian um, invasion, um, many of the uh, uh, individuals in the talent pool are from areas of conflict. But the woman that worked on my website uh, is from Nigeria and was displaced because of flooding. Um, and so the the focus at a macro level is to provide uh, talent opportunity because you can find it everywhere in the world, but those people can't always find their fullest potential roles when they are having to move uh, from their homes. And so, you know, the 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 backdrop is pretty extreme. At the end of 2022, there were an estimated over 100 million people that had been displaced by either weather um, or conflict-related events, and it's predicted to surge to 1.2 billion by 2050. And these are highly skilled and experienced people that are facing underemployment and economic instability because they can't move to new places and still have a stable job. So that's what Story Union's about. It's super exciting to work with these individuals uh, that have the ability uh, to have an impact on their end client base. I would be included in that. Everybody look at my redo of my website. They did my initial one, but I didn't have the time uh, to dedicate to it. So this isn't their best work. Um, but the next iteration will be, and I'm very excited to profile the uh, kind of quality work uh, that these individuals do all around the world and in some very distressed circumstances, um, but they rise to the occasion and it gives them the ability to have mobility for themselves and their families um, as they work their way through some very distressing situations. So anyway, that's one. I mean, but but the output of it is very exciting. I mean, they're they're producing great work for people. They're creating a team and a culture, uh, even though they aren't locally uh, and geographically um, uh, sitting with each other every single day. Um, and it's also a very diverse uh, leadership uh, team. And so the founders uh, come from very different backgrounds, um, both ethnic as well as gender. And so it's it's just exciting to be a part of it. But that's that's certainly one that hits a lot of a lot of uh, boxes. Absolutely. 
That's very cool. And and I think social enterprise, right, is the the key term here. So it sounds like they're hitting social very well. And then enterprise sounds like like you mentioned, the output is is very much um worth something and valuable to to their clients. So very cool. I, I'm just kind of curious building on that. That's one example of of the companies that you're invested in. But how do you kind of come to find these socially oriented companies and, and then maybe compare that to the to the sourcing model that you were a part of at Russell and then at Blair? Just kind of curious, is it difficult to find these these entrepreneurs and these businesses or are they kind of very much out there and, and just waiting for for the capital that's that's patient and and uh, accessible to them? Yeah, well, it's it's been it's I've had more um, opportunities than I've been able to fund to date. There's there's you know there's a bandwidth. I want to make sure that I'm actually being able to engage at a pretty deep level and have an impact rather than just writing a bunch of checks. I want to be very focused and measured about how I do it, and I want to make sure that I have the bandwidth uh, to engage. The the benefit of having been in the industry for a long time is that I have a lot of uh, great investors um, that are around the world that are doing the same thing with their capital. Um, they've set up, I, I did set up uh, a family foundation at the passing of my father. Um, and and so I, I want to do good with that. Lots of my peers in the industry have also done that. So either they're investing philanthropically, they're investing uh, in for-profit endeavors. And so um, fortunately, I've been able to tap into a pretty broad network, both here in Seattle, uh, which is a tech hub, and also one of the magnets of philanthropic activity in the world. And then also um, tap into my investment network around around the world. So I haven't had a problem sourcing. And I would say, James, though, that there are far more um, entrepreneurial founders that are diverse in their backgrounds with great ideas than there likely is capital to fund them all. And so you do have to have um, patient capital, as you mentioned before, and you also have to have the risk appetite. Um, and in this macro environment, you are seeing uh, investors de-risk rather than lean into risk with higher interest rates and the like. And so I think that capital allocated to some of these endeavors has been um, the gating factor rather than the number of great ideas, which is sad to watch, right? Because you do see great ideas. I also serve on the corporate board and chair the audit committee of a public company called Asana Biotechnology. And the science that they're developing is truly astounding. But like everything in life, you've got to pick your spots and you've got to prioritize which um, projects and which platforms and which science you're going to go after because it's incredibly expensive to bring a drug to market and go through clinical trials. And so that that painful process of deciding what not to pursue um, is just, it's, uh, it's painful, and but it's necessary in order to give enough capital to the things that you think can impact people's lives the quickest, and in this case, patients. So don't have a sourcing issue. There are more great ideas than there is capital, unfortunately, to fund them sometimes. But I think that underrepresented communities, um, you know, have just as many great ideas <laughs> as those that dominate the VC funding. And so if I can make a small dent in that and be vocal, like I am on this podcast about people looking for it, um, I think that would be a, a tremendous positive, too. Absolutely. You, you mentioned um, a little earlier that about your, your network across the world of people who are kind of trying to do the same thing um, with their capital, trying to make, make an impact. And I think that's really cool. And it kind of brings up, um, you know, a, a famous belief that we're taught in economics classes and, you know, is definitely a subject of debate, but um, it's kind of Milton Friedman's view on corporate social responsibility. And he 
obviously essentially states that um, firms should stay out of social issues and just let and focus on earning returns and then let investors and, and people do uh, with with their money what they want to do and put the put that money their own money towards societal issues and um, obviously kind of this has not been the case as we've seen a lot of firms taking initiative to try to make an impact through through their business activities and um, obviously you throughout your career you have also tried to do the same thing so I'm just wondering kind of your view on that Milton Friedman view on social responsibility and what you think what role you think investment firms play in providing a social good as well as um, like I mentioned kind of over the over the past years firms have definitely evolved uh, to become more sustainable and become more impact focused so I was just wondering if you could run us through also how that's changed throughout your career um, you know investing in these type of companies yeah well let uh, let me lift it up a little bit I think we um we all lose sight of um corporate responsibility investment fiduciary responsibility um government responsibility and philanthropic endeavors right so um i don't believe frankly anything has really changed too much over the last 35 years of my investment career we are fiduciaries for people's financial security this is not our money. This is other people's money. Um, there was a great book written by a Financial Times um, columnist. Um, his name is John, looking John Kay. And, it, and the book is titled Other People's Money. And I read it probably 15 or so years ago when it came out, lose track of time. But this, is, this time it is my money, but it wasn't my money when I ran Russell. It's other people's money. And your job as a fiduciary on behalf of these investors is to invest along the risk return spectrum and in the parameters of what they deem to be valuable to them. So some investors have very clear ESG um, 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 parameters they track it in Europe and Australia. They were at the forefront of tracking these things and some don't care as much and they truly just want to mask, maximize risk return. But the three-dimensional investment um, uh, imperative of risk return and possibly values is driven by the clients, not the investment community. Um, but Environmental risk, societal risk, and governance risk is an investment risk. And that is our business. It, it was the business when I was at William Blair and we invested in high quality growth companies. It was our business to assess the durability of uh, the business model, the uh, purpose of the business model, and the moat of the business model. And if we deemed a company to be, um, I'll just call it a sugar high, right? If it was, if it was over-levered, if it was a, if it was a fad, if it was answering what we didn't deem to be a long-term sustainable problem or need within the ecosystem in which it operated, it typically didn't get allocated our time. Now, were we called social investors? No, but but if you looked at the common threads of what we invested in within our portfolio, would it still meet all of the Milton Friedman check the boxes of being, you know, cognizant of companies that were delivering shareholder value? Yes, and in the spirit of you know Charlie Munger having passed away, I, I'm pretty sure. This is an actual quote of his, but I live, you know, next door to Costco here in Seattle. And um, Charlie's been on, had been on that board for decades. And his quote uh, during one of the Berkshire Hathaway meetings was that he did believe that Costco had done more social good than many of the not-for-profits um, that were in the country. And I don't know if that's true or not. I haven't realized I'm, I'm a big Costco fan, but I think his main point 
is that you can have incredible private companies that do enormous social good over time and the impact that they can have, especially when partnered with the public sector and the philanthropic sector is enormous. And so I believe, and I co-chaired something called Challenge Seattle here um, over the last five years, and it was um, um, run by um, our former governor, Governor Gregoire, and she was a phenomenal governor. Um, and she was our CEO. And then uh, it was 20 other uh, CEOs of the biggest companies in Seattle, which are also the biggest global companies in the world. And we came together in the spirit of partnership with public and philanthropic entities to just try to do the right thing, to listen to people. And it's not as though Microsoft or Costco or Nordstrom or um, T-Mobile ever lost sight of the fact that as CEOs of their companies, they were managing their companies in the public sector for the benefit of shareholders, right? Um, but they were very aligned with their purpose, which is also to provide an outcome that had a social, a social good and a social element. So I just don't, I don't think it's an or, I think it's an and, but I would never refute that you're managing as a CEO, other people's money, and as an investor, it's other people's money. So those other people <laughs> need to be fully clear with what it is you're managing toward, you're managing their life savings, and they need to have a voice in choosing to allocate their capital to you. And you need to be transparent around that. So it's not a philanthropic entity, but I don't believe it needs to be in order to have impact in a way that benefits society, the planet, or some other uh, byproduct of good. But you can make money while doing that. And I think that making money in many cases is the clearest way that you're on the right path to having a sustainable, scalable, positive impact on society if done, if done well and over time. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it makes total sense. I think I think it's hard to see it that way. It sometimes seems so binary. It's either you, it seems like sometimes earning return and making an impact are mutually exclusive, but it's, I think that's a really cool perspective and to hear that that's not the case at all. And that um, kind of to bring back your earlier point that you made at the beginning of the podcast, that usually the firms that are most successful over time are those firms that, you know, leave the world better than they found it. And I think that's a really cool piece of advice. And you also mentioned, you know, environmental, societal and governance risk is investment risk. And that totally makes sense. Like those are things that play into the return of investment. And you, you have to look out for those. And that's your job as um, a money manager. So I think certainly it's a, a very cool perspective and, and makes a lot of sense. And, um, you know, changed my view that sometimes I've, I've felt like, oh, um, to make an impact, you have to forego some profitable uh, projects. But it's cool to see that, you know, those aren't mutually exclusive. I guess to keep talking I guess, about the good that you do. Um, but you mentioned when we chatted the other day that you are a CEO mentor to C-suite professionals and senior partners at a consulting firm. So I'm just wondering if you could take us inside and give us a sense of those coaching sessions and, you know, what a day in the life of Michelle Seitz and other CEOs looks, looks like. And um, obviously kind of, we've alluded to throughout the podcast, all the other initiatives outside of, um, your job that that you're involved in and, and have a leading role in. So how are you able to to balance not only, you know, being the CEO of a company and founding your own company, but also the other initiatives and organizations that you're involved in? Okay. Um, so that's a three-part question. Uh, let me hit on them. And, and again, you tell me where you'd like to deep dive. But the first one is I really enjoyed um, uh, mentoring, coaching, and hopefully inspiring because I get inspired uh, by inspiring others. It's a bit of momentum. Um, but uh, the the coaching that I've done um, are both for uh, new C-suite members and then also with, with senior partners of professional services firm. I, I think the part that 
a lot of uh, what's misunderstood, um, especially over probably the last five to 10 years, is just the enormous um, clock speed and um, stakeholder engagement um, that has occurred and um, the pressures on the CEO. Um, so what I what I mean by that is I read something the other day, which didn't surprise me at all. I would sometimes put it higher that approximately 25 to 30 percent of a CEO's time is spent uh, putting out fires. You literally just don't have control of your time. And you all could think through examples of this with any company and any CEO. You have so many stakeholders. You've got your board, you've got shareholders, you've got the government, uh, you have regulatory uh, constraints, you have clients, you have suppliers, you have employees. Um, and that um, is both a luxury to be able to serve so many different constituencies, but it also means that the focus that you're able to have as a CEO is highly dependent upon those that you rely upon to do your job. And so I would say for many of these uh, senior partners, just trying to give them perspective about how to use the CEO CEO's time well, uh, do your work, be concise, assume that they don't have more than 15 minutes to think about what it is you're telling them, make their job easy uh, to absorb what it is you can help with them, be insightful, actually ask a better question. If you see them working on something that you think your firm could be useful and helping them do it or see it through a different lens, do it a different way, do it faster to have an impact, you know, share that uh, upfront. Nobody has times, time for a 50 PowerPoint deck. I mean, back in the day uh, when I was a full-time, now I am again, but a full-time analyst, I went to the K, I went to the Q, I went to the risks, and I went to the footnotes. That's all I read <laughs> as quickly as I could. When I get a pitch from a professional services firm or from an investment, I look at the I look at the last page. I look at the fees, I look at the, I look at the impact, I look at the financial statements. How does the company make its its um it's money. And they might say that they're a tech company, but that's not where they make their money. And so how do they really make their money? And what is the economic model? I think that that's true. Whatever seat you're sitting in, just get to the point really fast. What are the facts? Are you asking the right questions? Are you using the other person's time appropriately? Are you being respectful of their time? And are you putting yourself in their shoes that if you were them, what would you be worried about? And if you do that, you will have a phenomenal C-suite functioning at its highest levels. You will be one of the best service providers that CEO has ever had. And you will have an impact on their employee base, which is ultimately what you want as a service provider, right? You don't want to just get a project and you do your job and you hope to get another one. What you're trying to do is make the company better. You want to make the C-suite better. You want it to work more efficiently. You want it to be more effective. And if you have that mindset going in and you tailor your communication as well as your thought leadership around that, you will have a tremendous impact. So um, a day in the life, I'll pause there and then I'll go to a, a day in the life a little bit if you'd like me to, and then balance. Yeah, no, that, I think that was a, a great run through. And, um, yeah. I, I, I find it very interesting. It seems like you're extremely busy with all that you do. So we'd love to hear um, what, a, what a day in the like, life of, of your life looks like. Yeah, well, this one I'll be quick. My, now I, this is complete luxury because I get to choose. Um, as a, as a CEO uh, for the last 25 years for other people, meaning I had a boss, <laughs> you know, whether it's a board of directors uh, or it's, or it's a, a CEO of, of a broader company. Um, you know, I don't have a boss now and my boss is myself. So um, the, the beauty of today is 
uh, selecting where I choose to give my focus and how deeply I give it. And deep work is important work. Thinking through problems to root causes and whether or not you're solving the right problems in the best way to impact the most people is what I spend my time thinking about now. And I wish I could say I always spent my time thinking about it every single day when I woke up running Russell or William Blair Investment Management. But the honest answer is so many things were coming at you at so many different times that that I did do it, but it was a constant struggle to stay focused on the most important issues um, that only I could do, um, or it was critically important that I be the one to do it. Um, and so while I still have to tell myself that today to keep myself structured and focused on the right things that I choose to allocate my work hours to, um, it was just really hard given the sheer magnitude of problems coming at you every day in a CEO role managing, you know, thousands of people um, versus managing a much smaller endeavor. So it's a luxury now because I just get to choose investments and uh, where I spend my time and where I spend my time advising and doing board work. Um but it's it's a question of focus, no matter what seat you're sitting in. And that includes a student seat or an entry level seat or, you know, a senior manager seat. Um, but I, I think that's pretty important. I still today have the matrix setting up on my wall of, you know, what's urgent, important. And uh, and I, I literally filled that out. My chief of staff filled it out for me uh, when I was at Russell. So I'd wake up every morning and ask the entire team, are we all focused on the things that are most important and what do we stop doing and what do we delegate? And those were frankly, the more difficult questions. Not, there's always something important to work on. Um, the focus is the real question. So the day in the life is all about focusing. That's very interesting. And I think that everything we've, discussed so far has kind of led up and, and helped to answer this question, but I'm also curious to hear your answer to this question specifically. So what what do you think the skill set is that that makes maybe a good investor as opposed to a leader and manager? And then maybe how do those skill sets overlap? I know you mentioned um, a lot of like seeing the bigger picture and, and solving those complex issues and, and, and that bigger focus is very important from the investment side of things, but obviously that would make a lot of sense as the, from this coming from the CEO's perspective as well. So just curious how those roles overlap and, and complement each other. Yeah. So as an investor, you know, I've had, um, you know, the great opportunity to work with some of the best investment minds in the world. Um, so what I'll say from that standpoint is that having um, a high IQ it are, you know, is table stakes to being a great investor. Um, you've, you've just got to be able to have a very high clock speed, analyze companies very quickly, get to root cause issues, analyze risks. There are different kinds of investors, right? Um, and there's no one best approach to investing in my mind. So the skill sets of investors, whether you're a private equity or VC or a hedge fund or, you know, uh, algorithmic trading or whatever it might be, um, vary quite widely. I think the, the stretch, which is why most investment firms are no longer run by investors, the biggest leap to be um, a CEO versus a great investor tends to be um, people skills, um, strategy, um, and lateral vision versus vertical depth. And so I, I think adaptability, um, being able to have situational awareness so that you can pivot. I mean, you, you can, I'm sure, think of lots of situations where CEOs were fired in very public ways 
And in my mind, almost always, they lacked situational awareness. <laughs> they just, they didn't, they were tone deaf to what was occurring and the fluidity and the speed at which both strategy and managing a broad set of stakeholders in high stakes situations, whether it be political or regulatory um, or simply corporate, um, is very high. And so I'm not saying that they're mutually exclusive from each other, but being a great individual contributor, whether it's in a corporate environment or an investing environment versus being a leader um, is very different from each other. And I think it gets dumbed down when people talk about empathy. I, th I think it's, it's certainly the ability to understand people but I think the situational awareness of understanding the dynamics that are occurring with emotions at their highest levels and still being calm enough and facile enough with your uh, leadership abilities to bring a rational fact-based logic to bear and diffuse situations and build unity around the answers, even if they're difficult, hard answers that people don't wanna face, is a skilled politician, it's a skilled business leader, and it's a skilled, um, a skilled CEO. Absolutely, I think that's a really interesting um, separation between the two as an investor and, and leader. And um, I found it interesting that you mentioned that for investment firms aren't usually run by investors anymore, which kind of kind of seems surprising, but definitely a cool, cool point. And I guess to move on a little bit, and obviously you've given a lot of great advice in this in this short podcast already, but um, when James and I first met you uh, around six months ago or so, um, as you know, kind of ambitious finance students, not really knowing what we want to do, um, but obviously wanting to be successful and um, the typical metrics of success and, and wealth and money, but also wanting to to make an impact with our work. And um, sometimes it's hard as a, a young professional and a college student to see um, how that will play out in your life. But um, I remember you giving giving great advice on uh, not just focusing on on attaining you know material success, but also making an impact. So I was just wondering from our perspective, and a lot of our listeners are in the same boat, but what advice could you give to similar college students like us and young professionals who might be starting out in the finance world, but are not actually not exactly sure what they want to do with, with their life and um, how they can make an impact? Yeah. Well, um, you, I mean, you've already done it. You're, you're at one of the greatest academic institutions in the world. Uh, and it is focused on doing good and being a force for good in the world. I love that. Um, I love that motto. And I'll, I'll wrap this up at the end, maybe with one of my favorite quotes to, to keep me grounded. And as long as you have that as your aspiration, um, that you, you want to work hard, you, you want to have a, an impact and you, you want to leave whatever it is you do, whether it's a firm, it's a job, it's a role, uh, it's a community slightly better than when you found it and changed the trajectory just a little bit of the momentum um, behind the activities, you're going to do great. Um, so if you just if you just focus on that, I, I think the the one thing which I can appreciate, but the one thing that I saw the most in newer associates um, and colleagues over the last 15 or 20 years was wanting to do important work. And um, there is no question all of us want to um, do meaningful work with interesting and good people to have a positive impact. But um, you're not always going to be able to work on important things. <laughs> it's just, you know, sometimes businesses can be boring, right? I mean, getting the widgets out on time, making sure the presentation looks great.
So it just, you just sometimes you just need to take a deep breath and, pl- and put roots down and just do the best job you possibly can um, and, and make an impact where you're given the opportunity. But there are so many places in your personal time, uh, in your collegiate work time, uh, where you, I was expected when I first started at Nations Bank, you know, you signed up for your 401k, you signed up for your charitable and philanthropic activities. And it's just what you did. You got to choose, but you automatically, it was part of the corporate good to give back in Charlotte, North Carolina. You all had to sign up to run marathons together, to raise, you know, charitable uh monies. I mean, whatever it is you choose to do, there's plenty of time. And that gets back to the balance. I mean, it's life needs to be more integrated than it ever has been. But if you're not finding that your job is necessarily at this point in your career, and we all hit those points, is providing the stimulation intellectually that you want or uh, with enough meaningful work, find it somewhere else. You you're You're employed, you have benefits, you have talents, you have skills. If it's not being executed at any one point uh, in time within your life, go find it elsewhere. If it's not personal or spiritual, um, find it professionally. But I think that's what life's about, is you have all kinds of facets in your life, whether it's friendships or it's family or it's work or it's spiritual. And you just at any given point in time, you've got to tap all of those um, to different lovers. I mean, family may not be fun all the time, right? You have health issues, you have personal tensions, you have divorces, um, you have deaths, and that may not be as fulfilling at all times. So you lean on the spiritual, you lean on work to cope uh, with those difficulties. And I would just say lean in wherever you can find it, because you can create meaning in your life. Just don't expect it to come from any one place all the time. And that's what makes a rich tapestry of life. And it makes you a more complete person over time. Absolutely. And and maybe just to build off that with one, one quick one piece of advice, so you've shown and correct me if I'm wrong, you have five children, but so clearly shown that having a family and, and having career success are not mutually exclusive. I think something that Michael and I, especially, and and everyone in our shoes, I think, uh, wants to make sure that they do as they as they grow in, in worldly success is make sure that they also continue to prioritize some of those those deeper things you mentioned, like family or, or spiritual um, aspects of life. So just wondering how you have balanced these things of, of maintaining a priority on family while also meeting all the demands of, of your many, many jobs that you're taking on at one, at one time. Yeah. Well, first of all, I just, I just want to make sure to say it's, it's not easy. It's, it's also not impossible, but it's a choice. You have to choose to say no to lots of things. And it, it may not look like I've said no to many things, but when I've, when I've not done that effectively, I've become robotic. I've not given myself at work as completely as I could or should. And by that, I mean, I got the job done, but there were certainly times where my associates would give feedback that I wasn't as emotionally vested. You know, I was getting the job done. I was doing a hundred things at once, but I wasn't taking the time to give my heart and soul because I didn't have it, right? I had had five little kids or I had, you know, I was in the middle of babies crying and, and only having four hours of sleep or whatever it was. But not everyone can get inside your head and understand, nor nor do they, I hate to say this, but at a certain level, nor do they care. Nobody really cares about their boss. I mean, they do, but they aren't waking up wondering, I wonder what happened to them last night. I wonder how hard it is that they have a little baby screaming at home. They expect you to do your job, right? And they want you to care about them. And so I would just say that, um, integrating your life in a way that's true to you 
and build build your dream or else you're going to be building someone else's dream is really important to remember. So I do. So I think it was 19, 2000, trying to do the ages of my kids. Um, so with Libby, um, my uh, my daughter that was born in 2002, I had just taken over as head of William Blair Investment Management. I was 36 years old. My biological clock was ticking and I wanted more than one child. And I also knew that all of my male partners were going to be mortified that in the middle of a recession, a 36-year-old CEO, <laughs> that I was pregnant again, right? I knew they would be mortified. And uh, and they weren't, they were concerned. Um, but I sat there and thought to myself, if I don't have any more children, I'm the one that will suffer. I'm the one that 20 years from now will have given up some of the most important moments of my life. And for what? And that was absolutely true. And I also had every confidence that I could do my job while still having a fulfilling personal life. So you just sometimes have to make those choices in life that you know that in 10 years, in 20 years, in 30 years, you will be the one living with the regret of what you did not choose to do because of other people's expectations. And I will tell you that it never held me back from being an executive, but I gave up a lot uh, with my children in order to fulfill that dream of mine as well. Um, but I didn't, I didn't outsource, hopefully, um, we'll find out in time, um, but I didn't outsource what I deemed to be the most critical aspects of my relationship with my children either and with my family. So I think you just need to make your choices, be comfortable with your choices, be comfortable with the sacrifices that you're making along the way, and make sure that it's building the life that you want and your dream. Because if you don't, you'll wake up and figure out that you did, as I said, uh, you built someone else's dream along the way and not your own. Yeah. Wow. Michelle, that's very helpful. And I think super impactful for all of us in, in this young professional and, and college, college role, just to hear that. So really appreciate that. And then if you have the time, we've got five quick rapid fire questions. If you're able. Yeah, no, absolutely. Perfect. Okay. So number one is who is a role model in your life? Um, well, I have lots of them. My parents clearly would be, but with the passing of my father, I've reflected more on, uh, what he taught me over the years, but, but it's definitely those closest to me, but my, my father, uh, was an enormous role model. Um, number two, what are some resources you would recommend for someone in our shoes to kind of keep up with the market? Oh my goodness. You have so many. I mean, you have more resources today than I had in the first 20 years of my career. Um, I think so, sometimes uh, that makes it tough, though, from my it, perspective. It, I just, it just does. You, you, you actually are absolutely right. I mean, from a pure you know, stock market perspective, Bloomberg has enormous um, resources um, in terms of the retail investor. And um, and so I, I think from that, but I would, you know, my 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 stopping points um, have always been um, the Economist and the Financial Times because they've been the most global and have the broadest perspective. I think that's probably still true. I read a lot of things, but um, just try to focus on a few key things that are global, that are balanced. And if you find that you gravitate toward more, you know, conservative things, make sure you read something liberal. And if you gravitate toward liberal or progressive, just find something that's more conservative, but just look for balance in what you read and try to hold it up to the litmus test of whether or not it's fact-based and it's not sensationalistic in its reporting. So that th those would just be the key things I'd keep in mind. Cool. Uh, what is your favorite place that you've traveled to? Um, yeah, I've, I've, um, 
been so fortunate to go to so many places all over the world, uh, both in my professional post as well as um, trying to take my kids to see it. It's hard to pick one. What, what You know what I would say? It doesn't really matter where you go. Uh, just wherever you go, just get a little bit lost. You know, just just go. I used to I used to run really early in the morning when I'd go on European trips um, uh, when I was in my seat at William Blair. And I and it's before the days of GPS. So I take a paper map with me from the hotel concierge and I would always get lost. But I would get lost and I would meet like the truckers at the cafes that were unloading the trucks and they would try to speak to me because I don't speak any language other than English and not very well. So, so I, I, I just, those are my most memorable times is just get a little bit lost. No matter where you go, it doesn't need to be far away. Um, and just get a little bit more immersed in somebody else's world for a little bit of time and it'll make you a it'll make you a, a a better traveler but i think a better person cool um what is your favorite movie or book what um well that's like naming your that's like naming your favorite <laughs> your favorite child you you can't possibly do that so i will say a book that i'm uh rereading is a book called factfulness by Hans Rose Roslane. And uh, he's since passed away, but his children have taken over the mantle. But it's all about making sure that you're looking at facts correctly and not being skewed by statistic statistics or people looking to persuade you of the facts. Um, and I think being able to have a fact-based conversation around a common purpose is what we're sorely lacking today. So that that's been at least one of the books that I've I've gone back to reread because I found it so impactful. Cool. And then final one, uh, given your incredible and impressive career, what is one thing that you haven't done or achieved yet, but would like to? Um, you know, I don't have a great answer to this one. I think it's less about doing something and more about feeling as though you took full advantage of the life that you had the chance to live. Um, so I think it's more about what I said at the beginning, which is focus and um, and just doing all the good that you can, which maybe that's what I'll do. I'll in, in the holiday spirit and in kind of the backdrop of how I think about that question, because it's it's less about going on an adventure or a bucket list or doing the next big role. It's more about just asking yourself the simple question about whether or not you're spending your life the right way. Um, and is it true to what you're trying to achieve? And I'm still on that journey. Um, my dad used to say self-awareness was a lifelong journey, which I, I clearly am on. But I'll, I'll, I'll wrap it. Is that your last rapid fire question? Yep, that's about it. If you'll give me, if you'll give me, this is one of my favorite quotes by a a, a theologian, uh, John Wesley. Um, but this is what what comes to mind when you ask a question like that. Um, but this quote is, "Do all the good you can by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, for as long as you ever can." And that's what I'm trying to focus my life on now. It's going to be a lot of family. It's going to be a lot of friends, but hopefully a lot of meaningful work along the way. Awesome. That's incredible, Michelle. Thank you so much for taking the time. And we really enjoyed this. And I know our listeners are going to appreciate it as well. Good. Yeah. Well, you both have a wonderful holiday season. Good luck with all of your career endeavors, uh, but most importantly, your personal ones and have a great holiday season. All right, guys, that about wraps up our conversation with Michelle Seitz. We hope you enjoyed our conversation and learned a thing or two about impact investing, some of the characteristics that make a good CEO, and how you can try to make an impact in your own career. If, you're an, if you are interested in learning more about private investing, venture capital, technology, or startups, check out our platform of over 70 podcasts where we talk to top professionals in these industries. And you can find this platform on siliconstreetmedia.com or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. As always, if you have any guests or topics in mind that you'd like us to cover in the future, 
please feel free to reach out to us on our website. And with that, thank you guys so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode.